Let's come now before God's holy and inerrant word. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And then Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 20, say 28. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let's come before him in prayer. Ask for his help. Gracious Heavenly Father, We come now confessing with the prophet Isaiah that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word, it stands forever. What we need this morning is to hear your voice and to hear it clearly and to see how you bring about change when you speak. How when you open your mouth to speak, you call things into existence. Even on the very first page of the word you have given to us, you open your mouth and you call into existence the whole universe. Your son opens his mouth to speak and he calls forth the dead to come out of their tombs. Father, it is by your voice that you bring about change in our lives. And so we pray that you would do that this morning. For you know all of us. And you know what is going on in our lives. You know that some of us walked in this morning and our hearts were heavy and saddened by the brokenness that we see in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. Some come this morning and they are anxious about what will happen next week, where your providence will take them. And still others are filled with many doubts, wondering if your word is really true, wondering if the good news that they have heard about so often can really be true for them. 
And yet you know that some come this morning and they are filled with excitement to be before your word, to be with your people, for they feel as though they have never walked more closely with you than they are right now in their lives. You know where we all come individually. You know what's going on in our lives. You know what we need this very morning. We pray that you would, by your spirit and in your grace and kindness to us, that you would show us this morning our sinful hearts that you would pull back some of the veil and show us that we are far more wicked and sinful than we even really know about ourselves. And yet we also plead with you that you would not leave us there, but that you would take us to Jesus, that in Jesus we would realize that we are far more loved, that we are far more accepted, far more secure than we could have ever dreamed possible because of what Jesus has done in our place, in his person and in his work. Father, bless us now as we talk about your word. Guide us as we think about it. We pray that your spirit would take this word, that you would write it upon our hearts, and that we would leave here not just hearers of this word, but also doers. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this uh, past week, um, my wife and I had an opportunity to go to concert in Atlanta. Um, for those of you who know the band, we went to see you too. And uh, we planned it months ago to celebrate our our anniversary this year, and most of you have been to some kind of music concert before, so I think you'll, you will have all have experienced or seen something like this before, and what I'm talking about is that moment in the concert when the lead singer, he comes to the front of, or she comes to the front of the stage and starts making these big exaggerated motions with their hands to the crowd, and everybody that's there knows what's going on. This lead singer is calling for the people to join the rhythm that's being played on the stage by clapping, uh, to uh, join in that rhythm that's blaring out from those speakers. And, and it's true that at times you've been to these things that it's kind of it's a little cheesy sometimes. But sometimes when thousands and thousands of people actually find the rhythm together, and they are in unison together, clapping and following the rhythm and joining it, it really can sound amazing. And you know that there is rhythm around us all the time. We're we live in a world of rhythm. You know, every day has its own rhythm, right? There's day and night, and there'll be day and night tomorrow, right? And there's seasons, you know, there's there's fall, there's winter, there's spring, there's summer, and next year it'll be the same. 
We'll have those seasons again. There's birth, there's life, there's death. You know, many, many of you have gone through periods of life where circumstances, for whatever reasons, have changed your regular routine. And, and, and for a moment, it's exciting to have your routine changed. But a lot of you know what I'm talking about, that even from long vacations, sometimes it just feels really good to get back in a routine. And to, get, and to get back into the regular rhythms of your life, to be outside of the rhythm for too long is not a good thing. A rhythm is around us all the time. And if you haven't guessed it yet, what I want you to see in this fourth commandment is that there is a certain rhythm that you and I were built for. There's a rhythm in the command that God is calling us to join six days of work and one day of rest, six days of work and one day of rest. It's the rhythm we were designed to live in. You know, when you go to the concert, right, you you don't want to sit next to the guy or the girl that just cannot find the rhythm. You you don't want to be next to that person because, you know, when everyone is clapping in unison, it sounds great. But to lose it and to be out of sync with that rhythm, it's jarring and it's unattractive. At the concert Jennifer and I went to, I pointed out this guy that was about two rows up who was so far off the beat, you know, he, but he was doing the big motions. He was trying and it just, it, ah, it, it was just frustrating to see it. Um, you know, it is so far off throwing everybody else around him off. Um, and it was jarring. What happens when you don't live in the rhythm that the fourth commandment is talking about? It's just as jarring and as unattractive You either will, if you live outside of this rhythm, you either do not find the rest that God made you to enjoy or you don't and will not find true satisfaction in the work God made you to enjoy when you step outside of this rhythm. So here we go. Two points. We were made to work. We were made to rest. And in the end, I hope that we will will see this command pointing us to Jesus. First, I want us to see what this command says about work. We're made for work. In this command, God is saying... He made you to work. Verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. God designed his creation, his image bearers. He designed us to bring out the potential in his creation and to do that by working. He calls all of us to work. You see, no one is off the hook here. You can't raise your hand this morning and say, well, this doesn't apply to me. You know, you you may have a career or you may spend your time doing volunteer work or you may stay at home with the kids or you may be in school. God, no matter where you find yourself, God designed you to work in his world and he calls you to live in this rhythm. Six days you shall work. Uh, do Do all your work. Six days you shall labor. Sometimes... I think it's hard for us to imagine that God would call us to real work because we we don't tend to think of work in the way God thinks about work. We tend to think of work, I think, simply as kind of a means to an end, right? You know, I work so that I can further myself, you know, so that I can get ahead, so that I can get a paycheck, so I can afford all the many things that I want to do in my life. Um, You know, in other words, I'll do this so that I can really do all the other things that I really want to do. Or or maybe we just think about work like it is a necessary evil, you know, like suck it up. You know, this is this is life. Everybody has to work. Go get a job, you know, deal with it. Um, 
this command challenges that kind of thinking, and it does it by taking us back to creation. You see, God does it with this little phrase in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In this command, God wants you to remember the garden. He wants you to see that there was a certain rhythm to his work. He worked six days. He wants you to remember this story. He wants you to remember this story where he made man after his own image. And what did he do when he made man in his own image? He put him in a garden and he said, work it. It, He put him in the garden and it was before everything got so messed up by sin that God said, you are made to work in a perfect, sinless world. See, work isn't a necessary evil. It is good in and of itself. And strange as this may sound to to you, and I know this will sound very strange to some of you, this explains why I like to mow my grass. I, I really do like to mow my grass. And that may not be you, and that's fine, but I like to cut my yard, and I like to make it look good, and I like to go in perfect straight little rows and all that kind of stuff. And I love the feeling when I'm done, and I look at it, and it looks great. I love that feeling. When God worked for six days, he brought order out of nothing. And what did the book of Genesis say when God finished creating on all those days? He looked at what he did, he stood back from it, and he saw that it was good. What he puts man in the garden to do is to bring order out of chaos, to work, to bring out the potential in his creation, to make it fruitful and productive, to make the potential actual in this world. You were built for this thing. To find satisfaction in your work is you make the potential actual, whether you're a student, a stay-at-home mom, an engineer, retired, whatever. There is not one square inch of this world that does not belong to God. And what he does in his providence is he gives all of us a piece of it to care for, a piece to take care of and make the potential actual. Now, with all that said... There's a problem with mowing my grass, especially in the middle of August. It's 100 degrees outside, and all of a sudden mowing my grass is not the fun it used to be, Um, especially when you're about to dehydrate. You know, and then weeds seem to become a problem in my yard more and more, you know. And then these little creatures move in called moles, and they dig up my yard. And all all this kind of stuff. See, there's another side to this work thing. You're made for it. It's good. But there is a reality that we come crashing into. And that is that it's easy to say work is good, but it isn't easy to work. Because, you see, we'll always be trying and failing. We'll seek to accomplish and we'll meet with very few results. We'll struggle, we'll work hard, and yet there won't be an end to the problems we face. Work is good, but it is frustrated. That is the reality. If work was meant to be good for you, if you were made for it, then something obviously broke. And there's a Bible answer to that reality that we crash into with our work. The Bible's answer is that it's frustrated because of sin. God made man to work. But when man fell into sin, by doing what God commanded him not to do in the garden, everything changed. It distorted everything, including work. 
Just read Genesis chapter 3. Many of you are familiar with that passage. There is now pain involved in work. Now it would be by, by sweat that we toil. It would be hard. We would have to battle thorns and thistles everywhere, and not just in the yard, but in the classroom and in the boardroom as well. Where does this leave us? Work is good, but in a broken world, our work is met with frustration. I want you to understand, if all you see are those two things, then you are at a dead end. And you will either work for the weekend, you know, you just see that work is a means to an end and not good in itself. Or on the other hand, here's what you'll try to do. You will try and define yourself by work. And you will actually end up working yourself into the ground because you want success in your work to give meaning to your life. And that meaning will always be as fragile as your career, your paycheck, your grades, or your advancement. Work is redeemed only when you understand why you work. Two verses from Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. Paul's writing in this section to slaves, and this is what he says. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. You are made for this thing called work. You are to see that it is a part of the rhythm you were built and designed for. And the only way to find true satisfaction in work that is frustrated is to see that you work for the Lord, that your work, whatever it is, with all its toil and sweat and the weeds that keep coming back, it counts for something. And it counts even for eternity. Because of the fall, work is not all it was meant to be. But it does count for something because you are working for the Lord. To understand that work is good, frustrated and also redeemed, is the only way that you can hope to find true satisfaction in the work you were created for. Many of you, I think, have seen the movie uh, Chariots of Fire, and it's a story of these two men uh, are are told in this movie, uh, these two men who are track athletes. And in this story, these two men are contrasted. Their names Harold Abrahams and Eric Little. And they have the same job. Both men have the same job, right? They're both runners. They have pretty much the same ability. They pretty much have the same opportunities before them. And they even both wind up getting gold medals. You know, they win. They make it to the pinnacle. Um, There are two important scenes in this movie. And one of those scenes is this conversation, this famous conversation that Eric Little has with his sister. His sister wants him to go to China to be a a missionary. And Eric, in this moving scene, you know, he tells tells her that one day he thinks he is going to be a missionary in China. But right now his job is running. And this is what he tells her. He says, I wish I could do the accent, but Jenny, Jenny, I believe God made me for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. You see, that's contrasted with this other very important scene in the movie with Harold Abrahams. Because Abrahams is talking with his coach who's also his friend, and they're talking before a race, and he speaks to his coach, and he says this, I'm 24 years old, and I have never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. Same job, same ability, same opportunity, and even gold medals for both men. Yet one is empty, 
and one feels the pleasure of God as he does his work. What is the difference? You see it in these quotes. Abraham's is wor- he's working, but he doesn't know why. And so he works himself into the ground and into despair. A gold medal, and he still can't find satisfaction. But Eric, he's different. What he is saying is he's saying, God made me for this. And I run to please him. I don't even run to please myself. I don't run to please you. I don't run to please anyone. I run to please him. And when I run like that, I find his pleasure. You see, even in a world that is frustrated by sin's effects, we can find fulfillment in the work God made us to enjoy. And it's by living in this rhythm that we bring order out of chaos and we make the potential actual. And it all counts for eternity. Because ultimately we are working for the Lord, for the God who made and redeemed us. Well, there's the second part to this command, and it completes the rhythm. Work six days and then rest. You're made for work, but just as much as you were made for work, you're made for rest. You know, rest is one of, if you read throughout the entire Bible, rest is one huge theme that runs the course of the Bible. God's people are to find rest. They are to enter into rest. We are to enjoy rest. I heard one pastor refer to, the, refer to what he called the REM of the soul. You know, when, when people talk about sleeping, sometimes you hear those letters, right? REM, you know, rapid eye movement. When you're asleep, it's the state, uh, you know, it's the, the deepest possible rest that you can enjoy when you achieve REM, right? Six days of labor and only one day of rest, you know, it seems a little unbalanced, you know, a little unfair. But I want you to see that it is not about the length of rest, but the depth of rest. The REM of the soul. That's what this is about. And I need you to hold on to that thought as we work through this point. Again, God takes us back to the beginning in Genesis. There God works for six days, but he rested on the seventh day. There is the rhythm, right? He rested on the seventh day and he made it holy, it says in verse 11. He calls us in this command to keep one day out of seven holy. Again, work was good before the fall, and you need to understand that rest was also needed before the fall. Before sin broke this world and wore you out with all the thorns and thistles in it, rest was needed. You were made for it. Instead of spending more time in Genesis on this point, I want you just to think about who God is speaking to in Exodus, because I think this is important. He is speaking to people who were just delivered from slavery in Egypt, right? And now they're at the foot of this mountain hearing God speak to these words. And if you think about that for a second and look at this command, I think you'll see that God is in a sense enforcing blessing upon his people. You see, they were slaves working for people who were trying to oppress them with hard and difficult work. And then God comes along in his mercy and he says, I command you to stop working. Put it down. Stop. I command you to rest. I command you to be still. And it's not an option. He's enforcing blessing upon his people. His grace and his mercy upon them. What, here's what I think this has to do with us. I know many of you. And I know what many of your schedules are like. And you are some of the busiest people I know. We just we have a hard, hard time when it comes to resting. We don't know how to rest. 
In a book on American culture, David Brooks writes that the Americans are the hardest working people on the face of the earth, working, do you know this, working more hours per year than even the Japanese and working the equivalent of 10 weeks more per year than the Europeans. Now, we'll, we'll come back to that, his evaluation in a second. But we are the busiest people on the face of the earth. There is a slavery that is often controlling our time and preventing us from enjoying the rest God made us for. At times it is our jobs, but it is also our hobbies and our entertainment and the Facebook profile that some of you mothers can't seem to put down and leave alone. You don't know how to stop and rest. And you don't know how good that rest is for your soul. To put things down because they are controlling you and rest. You see, the temptation, I think, for us, when we, when we talk about the Sabbath day, is to start going to a list immediately to what can you do and what can you not do. And I'll just say that that's exactly what the Pharisees did. Mark chapter 2. They had come up with 39 specific types of activities that were forbidden on the Sabbath day. What can you do? What can't you do? So in Mark chapter 2, the Pharisees get really, really upset with Jesus when his disciples start picking, picking grain on the Sabbath day to eat. And we talked about that passage a couple of months ago, so I'm not going to talk about it fully. But you see, the heart of Jesus' response is in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's saying here that the Sabbath wasn't made to crush man. It wasn't made to tie his hands. It wasn't intended to put him under slavery again. The Sabbath was made for man. It was an, intended to give you rest and be for your good. You'll make a mess of understanding the Sabbath day if you don't get what Jesus is saying here. This day is for you and for your rest. In the very next verses, the Pharisees, we didn't read this, but they're angry at Jesus again because he has healed a man on the Sabbath. And Jesus is furious in that passage with the Pharisees because they do not understand the point of the Sabbath. They would not even show mercy on that day because they didn't want to break the Sabbath. They had entered into an entirely new kind of slavery. Again, I wish we could say more, but we just don't have time. This day is to be for your good, and you are to do good for others in this day. It is to be mercy for others. You see it in this very command in Exodus. It has a view to others. When God comes and he says, don't even make other people work for you on this day. Bless your sons, bless your daughters, bless your servants, your animals, even the foreigner within your gates by giving them rest and mercy on this day. At the same time, I want you to remind you of what Jesus says in verse 28. Sabbath was made for man. But verse 28 says this. Jesus says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And what he just told those people was, that is my day. It belongs to me. Exodus chapter 20, verse 10. But the Sabbath day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Jesus is saying, I am that God. It's my day. It belongs to me. See, the fourth commandment deals with this issue of time and rhythm. Six days for your labor, one, but one day out of seven. It does not belong to you. It belongs to your God. It is His day. God is saying, I get 
one day out of seven. It means that God gives you this day for resting and he gives it to you for worshiping him. You know, there is incredible mercy in this. Everywhere you look, people are are, are looking and trying to find something that will give their lives meaning. You know, a cause, a purpose, something to give form and direction and even joy to their lives. What we are all looking for is something that is bigger than ourselves. Something that we can join, something that we can be a part of, something that we can follow that will give meaning to everything that we do in life. God built you to live inside a certain rhythm that makes it impossible to forget that God made you for His glory. You see, here's the really cool thing about rhythm is that it just keeps coming around again and again and again, right? And a day where you are to be consumed with the glory and worship of God, it just keeps coming around again and again and again. So that you cannot forget that there is a king who rules and reigns over his world, and he deserves and he demands our worship. You know, to say the Sabbath day is really to say the stop working day. That's what it means. Do you know why it is so hard for us to rest one day out of seven? Why it is so hard for us to have one day devoted to rest and worship and necessity and mercy. To cease from all our busyness, to put things down, to put the ordinary things down that consume our time throughout the rest of the week. I think, I think it is because we are frightened by the quiet. David Brooks, who I mentioned earlier, identifies that that we're the hardest working people on the face of the earth, okay? But he also notes a reason for the busyness. And this is what he writes. This guy's not a Christian, by the way. He writes that our energy is merely part of some manic drive to avoid the deep and profound issues of life. We want to be distracted. And busy and entertained so that we don't have to hear the silence. Because in the silence is where you begin to feel, I have not measured up. I have not done enough. I'm a failure. You hear that in the silence. It's in the silence that you don't like to think about who you are, and it scares us to death. So here's the question. How can you enjoy not a superficial rest, but a rest that is deep? The only way you can do it, I think, is this. You have to realize that this command, it does point you back to creation, but it also looks forward to Jesus. Listen to some verses from Hebrews. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. Now we who have believed enter that rest. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day God rested from all his work. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work. 
See, we're to look back to Genesis, but forward to Jesus. He is our rest. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. The way you enter that rest is by hearing and believing the gospel. And it is a deep rest. It is a Sabbath rest. It is the REM of the soul. It is resting in the work of Jesus. It's in resting in his work that you will begin to understand that Jesus finished his work on the cross in your place so that you can rest from yours. There he died in your place so that the silence won't kill you and it won't scare you. But in the silence, because of the gospel, you can be reminded of a God who pursued you to a gross and bloody and shameful death on a cross. He bled for you and calls you to rest in his work and trust in that work. You see, understanding that is the only way that resting one day out of seven can actually become a delight to you. You know that the Israelites celebrated the Sabbath day on, um, on the seventh day of the week, Saturday, right? And in the New Testament, we see believers celebrating the Sabbath day on the first day of the week, and they call it the Lord's Day throughout the New Testament. And it is because something, let's just say, very significant happened on a Sunday. A Savior who was crucified and was raised from the, he was raised from the grave on that day of the week. You see, by gathering together each Sunday, this is what we're doing when we come together. We are celebrating again and again and again in the rhythm of our life that Jesus' work is finished. And the tomb is empty. And he has secured for us in his person and his work the deepest rest possible. Very, very brief illustration. I had a friend tell me about how he was in Walmart uh, this one Saturday afternoon. And um, he was... Uh, you know, doing his shopping or whatever, and he heard this kid in the, in the, down the aisle from him just screaming bloody murder, you know, just screaming like crazy in the store. And it sh- certainly you've been to Walmart uh, and, and you've heard th- this. I mean, I, I think my kids have done that. Um, but most of the time, you know, you hear it and this kid is screaming because he wants this toy or he wants this thing or whatever, and mommy or daddy has said no. Well, this kid is just screaming, it's going on, and uh, on and on. And so this guy's just, you know, he's trying to avoid it, ignore it, whatever. And so my friend says, he looks down, finally he lifts up his head and he looks down the aisle and he sees that this kid is actually not screaming because he wants something. He's screaming because somehow he's gotten separated from his mom. And he doesn't know where she is. He's just panicked, screaming. And he said, from, from the moment he looked at this kid and saw really what was going on, you know, about three seconds later, the mom comes running around the corner. And she scoops this little boy up in her arms. And he said, he watched. And he said the most amazing thing. He said that kid went from bloody murder screams. And within 30 seconds, that kid was dead asleep. In his mom's arms. See, all of you know this. It's not about the length of rest. It's the depth of rest. 
That's what you need. That's what this day points you to in the gospel. That that rest was won for you. In Jesus, there is a rhythm to life. Work and rest. And you need a day that keeps coming around again and again and again to remind you that heaven does not come by merit. It only comes by grace. Understand that. And this day will, in fact, become a delight to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the time that we have enjoyed. We thank you for this day that is set apart for us. We thank you that in your wisdom, you who made us in your image, who know us better than we know ourselves, that you have set apart this day for your worship and for our rest. We pray that this day would indeed be a day of physical rest for us, as well as a day for us to remind, to remind us of the rest that was won for us on Calvary's cross. Father, we pray that your word would do its work this morning that you would, by your Spirit, write it upon our hearts, and that you would not allow us to leave here unchanged by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.